Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Uniquely Normal, a Rob Bernstein podcast. I'm Rob Bernstein, and I'm so excited that you joined us today. We're going to be listening to an audio from a panelist discussion I was part of through the Autism Research Institute. On this panel, we have Tony Atwood, Stephen Shaw, Ronald Leaf, Wen Lawson, and me. And we spoke about my developmental approach and others too, taking on the cognitive or developmental approaches of supporting people on the autism spectrum versus the standard approach, which is applied behavior analysis, ABA. And it's, I think, really interesting. And I'm sure these ideas will greatly help you and your family. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to today's panel discussion. We're glad that you can join us. I know many of you are listening in from afar, which is why we facilitate these free talks. Parents and professionals alike can register for any of our free online events and have access to evidence-based updates explained by highly qualified expert presenters. We host multiple webinars each month, so please visit our website at autism.org to visit the schedule. Today's webinar was coordinated by Rob Bernstein, so I'm going to turn this over to Rob. Thank you, Denise, and thank you, ARI, for, for sponsoring this event. And I love that. It's my baby because it is personal. In fact, the genesis of this idea of different perspectives of treating autism or working with autistic kids really came 50 years ago when I was in college. I approached this behaviorist, A.O. Ross, Ron or anybody, have you heard of Alan O. Ross from the 60s and 70s? Um, fairly famous, I think, behaviorist at the time. And I was a student teacher. And I asked, I, I, I asked Alan, you know, Alan A.O. Ross, you know, what do you think about a kid who comes into the classroom who doesn't want to sit down? And he'll tell me, yes, get him to sit down and give him a reward. Then I take his exact language and I bring it to a person who called himself a humanist, another professor, Aaron Lippman. And I asked him that situation. I told him what A.O. Ross said. And Aaron said, uh, well, you know, talk to the kid. Maybe his, his pet died in the morning. And then I would take his words and go back to, so I went back, I was the mediator between, it was as if Alan O'Ross and, and Aaron Lipton were talking to each other through me. And this is college. I was finding myself. And at a certain point, I realized kind of who I was and what my orientation was. So it became personal. It was. It was this, this cognitively oriented idea of, of who I was and as opposed to behaviorally oriented, I realized that that's, that's more of a, a, um, a belief maybe, or at least my orientation rather than behavioral. And of course I use behavioral systems all the time. I use behaviorism all the time, but it is, it is personal. And that was kind of, my kid reminded me of that story and that was kind of the genesis of this idea that people from different aspects of pers different perspectives come together and talk. So, um, so we're, now we're going to have the same kind of discussion. And I want to, um, I want to introduce the, um, the panel. Uh, Tony Atwood wrote the 
standard uh, complete guide to autism, a complete guide to Asperger's syndrome. And, and he has a very strong interest in therapy. I know most of you know this, CBT therapy for, for adolescents and, and adults who are depressed. And, and, and he also has a special interest in girls and women on the spectrum. So that's an interesting perspective. Uh, and he's the assistant professor at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. Ron Leaf, who did extensive research in journals on, uh, and, and he's part of autismpartnership.com. And uh, he worked with Ivar Lovas, who was the person who invented invented ABA, behavioral approach. And I know Ivar Lovas invented ABA because of Stephen Shaw has it right in his book. He used invented ABA. And uh, so Stephen Shaw wrote this book, Autism for Dummies. He's a professor at Adelphi University. And he's been to can you hear me? more than 50 countries by now. Can you hear I know me? trying to get us, get Ron Leaf some uh, um, auditory yes, uh, connection. Yes, we can hear you, yeah. I just want to say that's a little generous to say that Ivar uh, created ABA. Right, yes. Well, you have to take it up with Steve. You have to take it up with Steve. That's a quote from his book. Um, okay, well, that's, anyway. not, that's, not a, that's not at all accurate. <laughs> all right, that's fine. We can, that's why we're here. We're here to talk about different perspectives. But Stephen, oh, yeah. what, listen. Speaking of my book, if I said that uh, Ron Leaf created ABA, um, then I probably need to change it because I know he didn't create it, but he certainly popularized it, and used it, and developed it. He didn't invent it. Yeah, but he, he didn't invent it. It's, it was around uh, uh, Thomas Watson was, uh, uh, you know, there's some fathers of ABA or behaviorism uh, that we have to uh, uh, consider when we talk about where ABA came from. But anyway, so keep on going. No, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to take my book and I'm going to cross out the word invented. Okay, and good. I'll change, do the same. I think we should change every every book of, you yeah. know, and make that correction. It's so a revi in, in your revised edition. And I, that's happened. That happens. Um, oh, sure. So Steve and Wen are both on the autism spectrum, and Wen wrote more than fifteen, twenty books, and his and his book, Older Adults and Autism Spectrum Conditions. Uh, that's an interesting perspective, right there. These the older adults, and and also he wrote a book. Um, transitioning together one couple's journey of gender and identity discovery. So you speak of different perspectives. That's a, a welcoming uh, topic. And um, I guess uh, I'm Rob Bernstein. I'm the author of the book Uniquely Normal, Tapping the Reservoir of Normalcy to Treat Autism. The forwards by Temple Grandin, who also wrote the forward to Autism for Dummies, Steve's book. 
And, um, and I've been seeing people for more than 30 years. So, so the way, what we're gonna do is that I'm gonna turn it over to Tony Atwood. Tony's gonna be moderating the discussion. He'll ask questions. And also, Tony will be answering them. So you're, you're like all of us, Tony. I mean, we all wanna hear you, know, you as well. So you're gonna be both the moderator and a, and a panelist. And um, you're just like the rest of us. So, so Tony, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Okay, thanks, Rob. Uh, you sent me a list of questions. What I'm gonna do is just go through the numerical range of questions. There are 17. Whether we will get through them all in that time, I, I don't know. But the first one actually extends from the issue of ABA, etc., which was certainly in the 70s and 80s. It was the time of an exploration of a new approach, and it was quite phenomenal in how it changed the lives of those on the spectrum. But the question is, as a parent of an autistic child, kid, would you suggest a behaviorist as a therapist or a cognitive therapist? I have my own thoughts on that. But okay, guys, Ron, Stephen, Wen, uh, and Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Can I ask Ron to begin? What are your thoughts on a behaviorist as a therapist or a cognitive therapist? I guess it's how you define a behaviorist. And I think there's a very narrow de definition of behaviorist these days. Um, I'm a psychologist who, is, who apply, uses applied behavior analysis, but at the end of the day, I'm a psychologist. So I think so, a psychologist that has a very good understanding of applied behavior analysis or vice versa is what I would want to use. Do I use cognitive behavior therapy in what I do? Absolutely. It's one of the tools I have. But I think there's a distinction that's made between behaviorists, psychologists, cognitive behaviorists, and I don't think that's a necessarily a good distinction. But it's how you apply, it's a how you utilize applied behavior analysis. And there's, there's a wide range, and it ranges from those that are very dogmatic and rigid to those that are quite flexible and use clinical judgment. So I'd want to use a progressive behavior analyst. That would be my answer. Thanks, Ron, because I've noticed over the years that uh, ABA has matured and evolved in a number of ways. Originally designed for those who had very high support needs, a very limited behavioral range, certainly improved their circumstances and abilities. But now we're looking at cognition. Now, Stephen, what are your thoughts on ABA and cognitive therapy? Well, my thoughts are that we need to, find, we need to use what best fits the child. Uh, now, that said, I tend to be biased towards uh, developmental approaches, perhaps developmental cognitive, developmental relational. So you're talking about Miller method, floor time, RDI, and so on. But that's not to the exclusion of the techniques uh, that the folks, uh, the ABA folks have given us. So, for example, uh, the idea of a functional behavior assessment, uh, that's brilliant. And we're only gonna be able to get to the root of a challenge if we find out why, what is the reason behind why a person is doing what they're doing. And just like what Ron said, uh, I've seen behaviorists that are incredibly rigid, even more rigid than us autistic people. 
Uh, I think you should leave the rigidity to us. <laughs> We're better at it. Uh, and, and, and with uh, ABA, uh, perhaps the more rigid practitioners or the narrowly focused practitioners are giving applied behavior analysis a bad name in many situations. Uh, for example, I don't know of another, uh, other approaches where autistic people have uh, talked about getting post-traumatic stress syndrome. Now that said, I firmly believe that's not all ABA practitioners. I don't even think it's most ABA practitioners. And it also may be a function of the fact that ABA is uh, far more widely used than other approaches. So there's, you might say, more of a chance to find someone who doesn't apply it correctly, but also more of a chance to find someone who does. I know of ABA practitioners who, unless they've told me that they were an ABA practitioner, I would have assumed that they were a developmental practitioner. And that is, I believe, what Ron Leaf is talking about, who, uh, where the practitioners are more clinically is using what best the individual. Okay, Stephen, I think that the last part of what you said was lost, but I, I, going through what you said, you said something that I think that's very important, and, and that is why. Now, obviously those on the spectrum who can't communicate, can't say why, but I would say those in level one, the old term Asperger's syndrome, often also can't explain why they do things. And this is the new research in the area of alexithymia, of converting mm -hmm. thought and emotion to speech. So when you say, why did you do that? I don't know. What are you feeling now? I don't know. What are you thinking now? I don't know. It's not that the person is being difficult. It's actually converting thought and emotion to speech. However, I have found that music, arts, typing, a whole range of things can communicate inner thoughts and feelings far more effectively than look at me and tell me. So the issue of why, whether it be done by ABA, cognitive or whatever, is very important. Now, when? How are you today? Are you okay? I'm not too bad, a little bit slow, probably. Okay. Yeah. Now, when? what are your thoughts? Um, it really is important that for all, whether you use speech, whether you type, it doesn't matter. It should always be nothing about me without me. So whatever um, approach we take, then it's to another human being with another human being. And we need to consider, uh, as Stephen said, that why they do what they do, why each of us does what we do. And if we can't connect to that, then it's really important that ways are developed with that individual that enable them to connect. So here in Australia, in the work I've been doing, we've been doing a lot with interoception programs, connecting um, via exercises so a person gets to know where they're feeling what, so they can learn to identify, even if they don't have speech. When people say, if you don't talk, you're not communicating, it's just not true. It's just that we're communicating differently and finding an, an approach, whatever that is, and it usually is eclectic, it's usually via several means, 
and finding an individual that will work with us and support us that considers and respects our humanity is vital. So parents have to do their homework. It's not an ABA therapist or a cognitive therapist. That's not the right question. The question we should be asking is what works with this young person? What team of people and family are gonna to work together in the right approach? Um, developmentally, as Stephen says, with respect uh, and, and in consideration of how that young person can communicate, and that might be via typing. It might be through protocol to go for example, various software apps on mobile phones. Um, it, it scares me to bits. It, it really is worrying that it's either or, because it isn't. And even the word intervention scares me because someone stepping into my life without my permission is very scary. And none of us would allow that. So I think with respect, we have to be really, really careful and ask the right questions and do our homework. Okay. Now, thanks, Wen, because there's a word that you use, team. And I would like to encourage on that team is someone on the spectrum, as you know, because one of the things that you do, and Stephen too, mm. is that you can provide the wisdom from your own personal knowledge of autism to provide insights which neurotypicals may never have considered. So I'd say a part of that team needs to be someone on the spectrum, but I would also look for in the future in cognitive approaches, that is psychotherapy designed for people on the spectrum, by people on the spectrum, and administered by people on the spectrum. So it's, it's really broadening the group of people that may be able to help and realize that the greatest wisdom is not always in a research article or a, a book, it's actually in a person, what I call the wise elders. Yeah. Okay, now we have another question. Number two, in the light of the protest against injustice to the African-American community, as well as to all minorities, have you experienced injustice as an Asperger person? And what approach can we take to make a difference? Okay, an interesting topic. One of the things that I'm concerned about, and I don't know whether this occurs in the United States, but in Australia it does, is that at high school in particular, autism and autistic is now used as a derogatory term. So if anybody makes a social error, they say, huh, what's the matter with you? Are you autistic or something? So my concern is the term can be used in a very negative way, where I hope it would be used as a positive way. And injustice is a major part of autism. Uh, on the other side is those with autism spot injustice and they are uh, very determined to resolve injustice. They are very adamant that if there's an injustice there, I will step forward and do whatever I can to deal with the situation. There's a very strong conviction for, for justice, but also a perception of injustice that may apply to them. So, can I ask Stephen at this point, what are your thoughts on injustice uh, to a, a person with autism? Well, uh, I don't know if you can really uh, rank uh, injustices. Uh, is it worse to be unjust to an autistic person uh, than it is to be unjust, unjust to a black person or to anybody? Uh, now, that said, uh, uh, injustices uh, violate 
the basic rules that so many of us autistic people have as to how things should be. And we have a very strong sense of equity and fairness. There are two different words uh, because often people think about fairness as treating everybody the same. And we don't necessarily treat everybody the same because different people need different things, need different supports. Uh, I'm wearing glasses, so is Wen, and so is Tony. But as far as I can tell, Ron Leaf and Rob are not wearing glasses. Oh, okay, Ron, you them on now. But, <laughs> but it is unjust that Rob does not have glasses. So I believe that the four of us should take off our glasses so that we're treated exactly the same. And so we don't want to get caught into that trap, but more rather equity. And that is providing for what people need. And some of us need glasses to see, some of us don't. If I loan my glasses to Rob, his vision is gonna get a lot worse. So he doesn't need that accommodation. And so great. And Tony, I just wanna remind you that I am part of the panel. I know it was, you know, I, I've had an organizational role, but please include me in right. okay. the questions with the behaviorism and cognitive or whatever. I know this question is particularly for Wen and, and Steve, but I just want to be clear on, on that point. Okay, Rob, I shall bring you in on those things. Good. Okay. Wen, what are your thoughts then in relation to injustice you may have experienced or people you may have supported? Yeah. It's huge. Injustice um, is enormous and it doesn't just happen in uh, the non-autistic population towards autistic people. Um, uh, it's, it's everywhere, as Steve said. Um, the question was specifically towards people as Asperger's syndrome with that label. Um, and uh, that's also a bit scary. I had uh, a, 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 a teenager say to me, when I have Asperger's syndrome with what's happened, Rehan's Asperger and the things that have come to light around his work during the Second World War and so on. If I've got a label called Asperger's, does that make me bad like him? And um, that was a very scary uh, question because none of us are made bad uh, by any labels or names. We come as human beings, we come as we are, and we bring the knowledge and available information we have to a situation. So injustice happens across the board to us all. As Steve said, it doesn't matter whether you have a disability or, 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 or whatever, ableism itself is an injustice. Um, I've certainly experienced lots of injustice, I, I'm sure all of us have in one way or another. And your comment, Tony, about autism being used, um, other people being teased because of their autism or teased because they do something, slip up in some way and they're saying, you know, are you autistic or something? Uh, when I was growing up, it was, are you spastic or it was, um, are you blind? Uh, why are you wearing glasses? Are you four eyes? There are all sorts of comments, and it's human nature, unfortunately, that these things, these things occur, and we all have to do our best to stand up against any injustice. 
whenever possible. Equity is the word, Steve. Thank you. Okay, just a, a thought. I was recently asked by uh, somebody who's doing a PhD into autism, and they asked me a question. For those with autism, what's their greatest challenge in life? And I said, yeah. neurotypicals. <laughs> their biggest challenge is neurotypicals. And that's their problem, really, I think, in a way. Now, Rob, do you have any comments on, on what we've said so far? Well, I was thinking about the behaviors versus cognitive, and I, uh, it is what works for that child, especially in terms of behaviorism. If, you're, if changing the behavior is the goal, and that happens very often, kid might be running across the street, it might be a safety thing, changing behavior, if that's the goal, then yes, a behaviorist is the most efficient way of changing behavior. There's no question about that. But if you're interested in uh, what's underlying the behavior and the way they're thinking, that may change the behavior in maybe a more long-term way, then I think the whys, as we've all been saying, the whys and the cognitive approach may be something to consider. Yeah. Okay, now Ron, your thoughts on what we've gone through so far? I. I... I've ex expressed for the second question. I, I really not being on the spectrum. It's hard for me to relate to that. I absolutely love what both of you said about it. I am. I think there's tremendous injustice uh, for many people, uh, including those with Asperger's and autism. And injustice is horrible in any form. And I, my heart goes out for all the injustice that people have been feeling and, and what has occurred. In terms of the, the only comment I have is that I, at the end of the day, I'm a researcher. At the end of the day, I fall evidence-based strategies. I think they're really important. And I think we need to take into account everything, but at the end of the day, we've got to see what the research is and what the research shows us. And so in an alternative treatment that um, was mentioned, many of those treatments have absolutely not a shred of evidence behind them whatsoever. And I think we need to be careful about that. The same way we have to be careful in the medical world we need to be careful on COVID and vaccines and what works and doesn't work. I think we have to be careful in treatment uh, for ASD. And I think all too often people are doing treatment and following treatment that don't have a shred of research evidence behind them. And I think that's dangerous. I agree. I, I think there can be all sorts of um, concerns about that. Now, the third question here. Um, on uh, insights on how adults with Asperger's can be treated respectfully, there's a reference to a comment that I made in the complete guide to Asperger's syndrome. And, and I've now modified what I said in, in the book a while ago. And people will say, what is autism? And, and you can give the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria, but I have my alternative uh, description that it's not a diagnosis, it's a discovery. The person is discovered, not diagnosed. And the way I see it is autism mm. is a different way of perceiving, thinking, learning, and relating. It's a different way of perceiving. Sounds are very intense. You spot details. You perceive the world through different eyes. It's a different way of thinking, a different way of problem solving. It's visualization. It's a whole range of things. 
but it's also a different way of learning. And unfortunately, most kids with autism have to be taught the same as neurotypicals in a social conversational context, but it's not their natural way of learning. And it's a different way of relating too. And in the sense of friendships and relationships may be expressed with love, but in a different way of expressing love. Now, the question then relates, how do you help such a person find a balance in the world? Because you almost have two cultures, two perceptions, etc. And the difficulty is, is how can those combine? Just very quickly, my thoughts are, is that the person with autism needs to be autistic sometimes. <laughs> Just get out into nature and do what they want to do, don't have conversations and uh, just, should we say, enjoy that difference. However, there are going to be times when you need to engage and you need certain skills. Like if you're living in Japan, you would need to learn Japanese to be able to cope with that particular culture. Now, on those thoughts, if we go, Rob, what are your thoughts on that comment? This idea of needing to engage is critical because you have kids who'd rather not engage. So what do you do? So I visited a school. There's this, my client is in a table all by himself. It's a crowded cafeteria. And I went to the teacher and I said, well, you know, this is maybe the perfect time at lunchtime to socialize, maybe the best time of the day. She said, well, we went over to him and asked him if he minded people sitting with him. And he said, I do mind. And the teacher said something interesting. She said, we respect his desire to be alone. And I'm saying, wait a second. Let's find a creative way to have the child engage. Why, you know, we could all think of ways. Have someone in a wheelchair that can't fit in another table because of the space that person needs. Go to the person and say, look, we have no choice. This person's going to sit there. We could mention to the person in the wheelchair how to maybe start a conversation or not, just having the presence there. And maybe after a week, you know, there might be some engagement. So we have to, I think, be creative. Because if we let, as an educational system, if we let the, the kids say, no, I'm going to, you know, just be by myself, we have to find ways to, to engage them. I think it's up to us. Okay, now Ron, what are your thoughts on that? Um, let me put my psychologist hat on. And, and I, as a psychologist, no matter who I'm treating and working with, I have to look at what are the impairments to the quality of their life. And those impairments are something we need to address and deal with in a collaborative way. If it's not an impairment, then there's no reason to have to deal with it. So I think that that's the view, advantage, the view I have of dealing with, whether it's children, adolescents, or adults, what's impairing them. Now, I think it differs, by the way, a child is not necessarily making an informed decision. When we're dealing with adolescents, it's, it's an informed decision, it's certainly adult. And so again, it's, it's what the, who, if, they, if they're making an informed decision or not, um, but it's really helping improve the quality of life, whatever the issue is. And I quite agree with Rob, I think engagement is a high quality of life issue. And so we have to be creative and help with that. Okay, thanks, Ron. Now, Stephen and when there have been times when you were at school, when you may have decided, I don't want to engage. Stephen, what are your thoughts on that situation? 
Well, my thoughts, uh, my thoughts are that uh, we need to respect the right for us to be autistic. And as I think about uh, my, my definition of autism is similar to yours and that it, autism is a non-standard, right? you could substitute the word different way of uh, experiencing and interacting with the environment. So what, it, what that requires is, for example, I have, uh, I'll take a hearing sensitivities. Uh, that's one. Uh, when I started becoming a professor, uh, started my work as a professor at Adelphi University, uh, my students seemed to be engaging in this horrific and excessive and noisy, gratuitous social interaction. Boy, were they loud talking to each other. 25 students, that was terrible. And I, I'd, I'd shush them down and they'd, be, they'd quiet down pretty quickly. And then I'd get on with my lecture and we'd all be happy and we'd all go home. And then one day I thought, I wonder what they're really talking about. And so I listened. And upon listening, I realized that they were talking about the course content. And if that was the case, maybe my students wanted more back and forth and more, wanted more of a discussion than a lecture. So I changed my teaching style to talk, to, to have a good discussion about the material. And as long as I covered all the material by the end of the period, then okay, all is well and good. It's just another way of going about things. Now that's an example of being able to make a modification on my part. Uh, other situations, uh, just last uh, February, I spoke at a conference uh, with, uh, that had 800 people in the audience. Now audience size, it doesn't matter to me when I'm presenting, uh, that's no issue. But I had walked into the room just after the presenter told everybody to turn to the person next to you and share your feelings about whatever it was. And it was just such horrific noise that I just had to leave. Uh, I just couldn't, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, so I left the room. Unfortunately, I didn't have to present for an hour or two afterwards, so I could recover and stay in a quiet place, uh, sort of behind the room, instead of being in that room. So for us autistic people, it's making a bit of a judgment call. Uh, is this something that's worth accommodating for in our part, such as with my students? Uh, is it something that may be worth accommodating for, but we're just not able to do it. And I was just, I knew I wouldn't be able to tolerate being in a room with 800 people all yakking at each other at once. Uh, or is it just something that's not really important to us? So for example, I know that I'm really low functioning in a noisy bar. Now I know that I could engage in auditory integration training, perhaps I could wear ear protection, maybe I could go to the biomedical folks and get some magnesium to help with hearing sensitivities, I could also learn more about nonverbal communication, or I could decide that I can lead a fulfilling and productive life, getting back to Ron's comment about quality of life. I can lead a fulfilling and productive life by not going into these establishments and focusing on 
something else. So these are my experiences in addressing and working with, and the key is working with, not working against, not trying to become more non-autistic, but working with my autistic abilities to um, promote maximum success with engaging in the environment. Okay. Can I make a comment? Uh, just a thought on that uh, is that we're really here to talk about adults, and the adult with autism will eventually know what they can cope with and what they can't cope with. But as an adult, having control over whether you go to a bar or not, unfortunately for kids, they often don't have that control which can lead to many behavior problems, oppositional defiance, pathological demand avoidance, because you want control in your life. But as an adult, you have a greater opportunity to make those choices because you're being placed in situations that are actually quite aversive. Now, when your thoughts? Make a comment. Um, okay, Ron, Ron, Ron wants to say. Oh. Yeah, let Ron speak and then when you're on. <clears throat> I just I want to go back to the research aspect where I said you mentioned you could do auditory integration training. Well, there's no research that shows it to be effective whatsoever. In fact, it shows it's harmful. Biomedical, there's no research to show it's effective. But there is research that shows that systematic desensitization would be effective in dealing with noise sensitivity. So again, I, I, I just want to make the comment there are strategies out there that could be effective and be helpful. You may choose not to use that or not. I understand that. But it didn't could impact your life. And it did impact your life. If you didn't have an hour and a half to decompress, that could have been a problem for you. So if that's something that would be helpful for you, if that's an impairment or a challenge for you, I would suggest that we, you go down the, the path that shows that what really is truly effective and not use those strategies that have not a shred of evidence behind them. Rob, now you're going to make a comment. I just want to back up what, what you said. It's a fascinating point that adults could really control their life in, in many ways, and kids can. So I had a high school kid had such anxiety, and part it was partly because he had a writing assignment, and he had to um, watch, refer to his favorite TV show or video, and um, he said, I, I, to the teacher, I, I only read books. I don't watch TV. I don't, I don't play video games. And, um, and the teacher said, no, I'm sorry, you have to do the assignments. I said, don't worry, I got this. I was going into the school anyway the next day, spoke with the dean, spoke with the teacher. I said, look, it's a writing assignment. I'm sure the teacher, I'm sure this is an easy one. And the dean says, I'm sorry. The teacher says this, he has to talk about a, uh, a, a, a movie that he saw and write about it, and they didn't budge. So it's, it's, we have to empower these kids. Adults are empowered because they're adults, but there has to be some respect, if you want to call it that, for, for these kids that don't have that power. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. I, I'm very concerned when teachers say, we can't make an exception because I, I think we do need you. Now, when? What are your thoughts on what we're saying on this topic? Okay, I just wanted to initially say that the things that I've said so far are all research-based. I want to make that clear. Um, the, the aspect of engagement, you can't engage with anybody if they're in pain. 
and a lot of those sensory things that Steve mentioned with noise, with lights, you know, I wear these colored glasses for that reason. Sometimes I've got a cap that I can pull down over my eyes. Um, uh, you can't engage if I'm overwhelmed. So it, it really is important that you know the, the child or teenager or adult, that you know what causes them discomfort and that you actually mitigate those things in the best way that you can. I don't use words like impairment personally. I think that we brand around impairments and disorders and things like this far too much. As human beings, we all have difficulties. And we have to find ways to work through those and engaging with an individual, finding the right way is important. And the systems like schools, I've been working in the education department in South Australia uh, with a complex needs team. And we go into schools and have teachers who say that sort of thing that you've just said, um, Rob, about we can't adjust the curriculum. <coughs> Rubbish. Of course you can adjust the curriculum. And actually the appropriate accommodations are within the legal law and we have to make learning accessible. So it's very, very important that we engage, yes, but that we engage in appropriate ways that are right for that young person. And in autism, we all know, and Tony talks about this lots, that we have our passions, we have our interests, and it's very important that those passions are considered. We're talking quality of life, then that's so, so valuable and important. I'm working currently as a researcher on a project looking at quality of life, and uh, it's very different to the quality of life scene as in what makes quality of life for typical people, and I don't like that term either, non-autistic people, what makes quality of life for autistic people are very, very different things. So again, we're coming back to um, uh, the individual and nothing about me without me, coming back to what's happening to initiate and work with what's engaging for that person. I don't do video games either, Steve. Um, I love reading, but I can't read books because I'm dyslexic, so I read over my my Kindle where I can highlight things and, and read differently. If I need those adjustments and I need them at school, when I was at uni I had a note taker, I had a, a recorded lecture so that I could listen and go over things again. I have to learn differently. Um, it's not the same but it's equitable as again Steve pointed out. So lots of different things coming to mind Tony. Mm. Thanks Wendy. Yes, it, uh, as you say it, it's learning differently and uh, I think a good teacher is able to be flexible within the rules yep. and accommodate and that's what i look for is if the teacher can do that now the fifth question we've got here in stephen shaw's book understanding autism for dummies he says quote the miller method focuses more on cognitive development aims to close developmental gaps between where a child uh, where she's expected to be uh, practitioners of the miller method strive to understand the world from the child's point of view. Two questions. What do you think about an approach that deals with developmental gaps? And what do you think of understanding the world from the person's point of view? Stephen, what are your thoughts on that as it comes from your book, uh, Autism for Dummies? Right. Uh, well, uh, one of the things that attracts me to the Miller method, uh, uh, some of the things, uh, what you just mentioned, uh, it only makes sense to me to develop uh, why autistic people do what autistic people do. So it's taking that concept of theory of mind and turning it upside down, which is commonly used against autistic people. Autistic people don't have difficulty perceiving the non-autistic mind, 
Uh, but we can also say the non-autistic mind can be challenged to understand the autistic mind. And uh, yeah. so understanding uh, where that person is, is uh, can be very helpful. Uh, maybe the person's going wiggy because uh, of fluorescent lights. And that person's perceiving the lights like most people perceive a strobe light. Which is fun on Halloween and maybe some parties, but certainly not spending all day. Uh, developmental gaps. Uh, someone maybe aged 15, but developmentally, language development, uh, however they speak, and we need to be careful with that because uh, when I use the word speak, I use it in a more broad term, however they communicate. Uh, maybe that person's communicating at a five year old level. We haven't quite figured out how to uh, develop a reliable means of communication uh, with this person yet. What are we going to do to improve communication in this case? And that's just an aspect of, you might say, closing a developmental gap. Right. Okay. Often in autism, there are differences. What you can have is somebody's average abilities here, their intellect is there but their social emotional is down there. And one of the problems is how do other kids relate? But also I find teachers tend to relate to the child at the behavioral level, not the intellectual level, which is a gross insult to the person right. on the spectrum. And another comment you, you made, which, which could be called theory of autistic mind. And neurotypicals <laughs> aren't very good at it. <laughs> they are very clumsy. They miss all the signs. Theory of autistic mind is what we need to have programs on. Now, when what are your thoughts on the topics we've we've just been going through there? I I, I think I gave my my comments. I thought Tony, did I miss something? Oh, this is about uh, looking at differences in developmental gaps in oh, areas right, of okay. ability. Yeah. 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 Now, there's lots of developmental gaps, but that's certainly not just true for autistic people, as you've rightly pointed out. Um, NTs seem to feel like they've got a, uh, I don't know, a better angle on this. And I think that that's not always the case. Uh, as autistic people, we are rarely, we rarely lie. We love truth. We're honest. Um, I think we can learn to lie, but that's a, that seems to be a developmental thing that happens quite young with children when it's not something I particularly want to develop the ability to do. Um, I think that we're looking, perhaps we're looking at this in, a, in a, an inappropriate way because we need again to be looking at the individual and where that person's at and working with where they're at. Cognitively, intellectually, emotionally are all very different planes and we meet them in different ways. I had a young person who was 17 but loved her Fisher Price record player, which you usually would give to a three year old. And because this was considered not age appropriate, they tried to take it away and give her uh, a device that she could listen to um, um, with her, her, her music. And had, that didn't go down well at all. So I was trying to explain to them no, I look, actually, the teacher had totally age inappropriate socks on. Uh, um, that were just not right at all. But anyway, that didn't go down too well. Explaining that this is where she was at, and this is it. We're, we're too hook up, taken up 
hooked up on, sorry if my words aren't coming out right, uh, it's in my head what I want to say, we're too taken over by appearances and where a person ought to be or shouldn't be, rather than respecting and working with the individual where they are. So um, I work all the time with young people in various capacities and ways uh, to relate to where they're at because I respect and want to engage with them at that level. They don't stay there, none of us stay there. I was once three, I'm now 68, just like Tony, we have the same birth year. Um, I'm your senior by about a couple of weeks. Yeah, three, three days, Tony, three days. Oh, so a few days. Okay. It's just a few days, just a few days. But um, so I'm probably getting off topic. Sorry, folks. Call me in, Tony. Call me in. <laughs> okay, thanks, Wed. Now uh, we'll go, Rob, then Ron, because the next topic is is really related to Ron. But on the way there, Rob, what are your thoughts on this topic of gaps in ability levels? When you think of a child learning to speak, part of why a, per a kid speaks in the first place is that she would understand that another person exists, that that she's not totally egocentric. And we know a lot of our kids are re really egocentric. But a child speaks, one reason why a child speaks is that they are expecting a response from another person. Now that's, to me, it's a cognitive function. If a child, and that's a cognitive developmental gap, that if the child doesn't understand that another person is going to respond, doesn't have that cognition, we need to teach the child that. We need to teach the child that that person's not the only one in the world. And what I advise parents or anybody to do is that nobody could tell you your own feelings. So if I have a kid who wants me to buy coffee ice cream, I don't like coffee ice cream. There's no way I'm gonna buy coffee ice cream. But this is a 20, 25 minute lesson for the kid to understand that he has to see it from my point of view. He learned that because I was as stubborn as he was. And so that, that's the kind of gaps I think we need to bridge. Okay. Now, Ron, your thoughts on this issue here of often in autism, there are various levels and you've got to really recognize that there may be considerable differences in certain functioning and abilities. What are your thoughts on that topic? My first thought is I love coffee ice cream. Um, how do you not like coffee ice cream? For we don't agree on anything. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I think good teachers, good therapists, good psychologists, uh, you take in developmental gaps. And you have to look at an individual thing, always individual intervention, and you look individual gaps and you see what you can do around that. That is a fundamental part of, of intervention is looking at developmental gaps. I think the other fundamental part is being able to relate with your, the person you're working with. Social relatedness is absolutely essential. We, we, in, in the therapeutic world, you talk about therapeutic alliance, how important that is. And so you have to try to understand the perspective of your learner the best you can. So I think those are two fundamental parts of, of doing quality work. Okay. Now, Ron, the next uh, topic is actually related to a book of yours and about learning to communicate, learning to speak. Uh, in uh, Crafting contem uh, Connections, Contemporary ABA for Enriching Social Lives, um, of the person uh, on the spectrum. Um, 
facilitation of language, quote, we usually see far more natural development of language through play and social than through structured therapy. Children are far more receptive to vocalizing and speaking when they are relaxed and having fun. Yes, Ron, your thoughts and elaborations on that. I agree with it. Um, <laughs> well, I should hope but, you should. But, you know, again, it depends on the age. It depends on who you're working with. Sometimes you have to start language development in a very structured way. Um, and you look, I look child by child, adolescent by adolescent, adult by adult. And if I can do it in a more natural, more engaging, more social way, that would be my preference. I, I think it is, makes it more, it's more motivation to learn to communicate in that kind of way. It's more enjoyable. And so that would certainly be my preference, but I certainly see situations where that's not the best place to start. Um, and so we have to go back and do it in a more structured way. I look at what I do on a, on a, on a continuum from structured to very lackadaisical, everything in between. And I have to look person by person, where do they fit, where do they learn the best? And I have to look, take their lead in that. I have to observe carefully, but I also have to see where they're at. And if I can do it in a natural way, that would be my preference. But sometimes I can't. Yeah. Just some, some thoughts on that. Often in autism, there's performance anxiety. Uh, and often I find that when the person is very stressed, then they may have difficulties with accessing information as to what to do, motor coordination and so on. And when you have Asperger's syndrome, you can have selective mutism when the person goes into class and literally can't speak because they're overwhelmed. When relaxed and comfortable, then there's a, a remarkable verbal fluency. So it's looking at the mental state, but also in the sense of play, Sometimes the forms of play, whether it be on a swing, trampoline, or using rhythm in a way, can also facilitate speech. So I think we're going to have to be much broader than conventional speech therapy of sitting opposite the person encouraging speech to facilitate language. Now, Rob, your thoughts on this? I love what Ron said, the idea of having a natural environment. And, and I also like what you just said, Tony. And I want to, again, how do we teach the child to have language from within themselves, which is the way we talk? You know, nobody said, say the word house with a card, and we teach the kid to say house, because that's what you want the kid to say. So I just happened to have a, uh, a, a can. I didn't fill it up with water. And this girl's looking at it, you know, and. And I asked, like, what, what, do you, what do you say as a teacher or a parent? And the answer is nothing. You see if this evokes language from within themselves. So this little girl, and I have this on tape, she says empty. She doesn't say water. She, does, she says empty. That's not one of the first 50 words that they, you know, that's on the list of probable words. I think this is one of the first words she's, she said. So we're giving the kid an opportunity to speak. And it's natural. It's a natural way because, and I think Ron would, would like that, it's a natural way because the language is coming from within and the situation is dictating the expression of language. Okay, thanks Rob. Now, Stephen, your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um... Well, uh, with language, it's important for 
autistic people to understand the meaning of communication. What does language do for us? And uh, that happens in a much more natural way than, uh, as you mentioned earlier, sitting in front of someone holding up a picture of a cup and getting them to say cup. And uh, Rob, you gave a really great example of you holding up a watering, a watering can and you expected her to say water, but she said empty. And that can give us, uh, that, that's, a, that's a gift to us because that's something we can work with. Yes, it's empty. It's empty of water. We need to fill it up. What should we fill it up with? And so on. And then building language around that. So, for example, uh, if you're going to teach the word cup, because I mentioned that earlier, uh, I think it would be very useful to teach more about what a cup does and experience what a cup is, whether it's pouring water, hanging it up on, on hooks, uh, stacking them, uh, whatever else you do with a cup. So experiencing the object or the action of the word. Which requires flexibility, imagination, and to just go with the flow. Now, when? What are your thoughts on encouraging uh, language, particularly through fun activities? Yeah. Um, I think talk is cheap. I think anybody can do it, probably, or at least lots of people can. But talking is not communication. And communication we've been talking about it together here is about sharing and connecting and that doesn't have to be through language I, unfortunately i come across people who won't use writing through the typewriter the sorry the laptop computer ipads um won't use software like protocol to go for example protocol to take because they think it will stop a child speaking and the frustration I see in people that builds up because they can't get out what they're wanting to share is awful. And um, talking can use speech to interject and steal your thoughts and take away what's going on inside you. And it's very uncomfortable at times. So communication, yes, but I don't think it always has to be language. Anything that can assist a young person to communicate we should be exploring rather than denying them because they're not using words you might remember the era when deaf people were not allowed to sign because the emphasis was on using their voice and uh, a whole community was disadvantaged because they were not allowed to to be themselves so I just think we've got to be really careful that we do emphasize communicating and communication and words are lovely and speech is great if you can do it but we need to get past that just talking and more on communicating thanks when for those with, with classic autism i use the phrase the mannerisms have a message the person may not be able to speak but by the tone the type of movements and so on and it's what i call a foreign phrase dictionary you can translate what the mannerisms are and learn a lot about what the person is trying to communicate by translating the mannerisms 
But if I move to those who are fluent in speech and alexithymia, I found if the person is going to describe their inner world and thoughts and feelings, often through art and music is the way that the person is able to describe their feelings. And I'll say, okay, create me a playlist of songs that represent your sadness. Go to Google Images, type in sad. You'll have 500 images of sadness. Choose 10 images that represent your sadness. You are a great fan of Harry Potter. Choose a scene or a passage in a Harry Potter book that describes your sadness. And this is where we need to recognize that those on the spectrum may be successful in the arts as a means of expressing their thoughts and feelings. It's their communication system. I've just written a, um, an, a, a, shall we say, an endorsement of a book on um, Beethoven. As a child prodigy, a lot of people read about him. Many of those signs seem to show autism. But if you want to know Beethoven, it's through his music. His music gives you an insight into the inner world. So that's where I think in those sorts of areas can help. Now, I am aware of time and the possibility of questions. Now, Rob, should we take a break for questions or carry on with the questions on the list? Your choice. Well, I'll say a couple of con concluding remarks. Tony, you could say the final word if you want or anyone else. And um, I'll just say, I, I just want to thank, you know, all you guys, the panelists coming. I want to thank the listeners. I want to thank ARI for, for sponsoring it. And I think it's good to hear different viewpoints. I mean, I know, and you know, there's integrative psychology that's been doing this for a while. I think in, in, in this field, I think it's, this is, it's a good thing to, to have this kind of interaction. And, and I think we should do it more often. But, and um, I'll leave it to Tony or anyone else to have any uh, final thoughts. Okay, uh, just a bit of clarification there, Rob. Um, are people tuned into this? Are they able to submit questions for us to answer? They are, yes, yes. They and, are. And, and, and I'm thinking... And, uh, and, and Denise, I'm sorry. Denise is, is collecting any, any questions. I can't see them. Um, but Denise, who's the who's host, uh, will, is taking any questions that people ask. I don't know if there are any or not. Uh, okay, yes, well, there are yes, there are questions. Okay, so let's do that first. Yes, because we've got a reasonable amount of time to answer those questions. So Denise, we will leave you <clears throat> to prioritize them. Um, Denise, could you tell us uh, a question? Sure. The one thing that has come up repeatedly in the questions is about COVID-19 and the current challenges with social distancing, trying to provide supports of any kind. So have any of you got insights about how therapists or parents could be approaching this or should be thinking about this as we walk on through this difficult time? Well, I have three, okay. three ideas that come to mind right away. Um, yeah. and, yep. and I call them the big three. And the big three, three are routines. It starts with routines. Uh, keeping routines uh, as much as possible, the same, the same as they are, uh, as, as much as possible. However, recognizing that routines are going to have to be changed, and then changing those routines to be as similar as to what we're used to, to begin with. So, for example, I had a routine of where I'd get up in the morning, 
I'd ride my bicycle to work to, uh, uh, and teach my classes at the university. Uh, with this uh, pandemic, we all got booted out of our universities. I made a run for the border to Massachusetts, uh, Boston, 208 miles away. And some parts of my routine are, uh, they're, uh, they're different now. Uh, I still get up in the morning, have those morning routines, which can be represented uh, by using uh, pictures stuck on a wall if the autistic person communicates uh, through pictures and understands them more than uh, words. Uh, that's all fine. Uh, however, my getting to work, exercise on the bicycle is fine because work is at home. So what I have to do is be mindful, and this gets into one of the big three, and that's self-care. Mindful of self-care so that I can still do what I can do. And part of that self-care is being mindful of movement, making sure that I spin an elliptical bicycle at home at least once every other day and then doing other exercises. Uh, my work, I'm still doing that. I'm still teaching, still giving presentations, but that has changed as well. And now that's at home. And there's also communication. We've got to make sure we're communicating with the autistic person in the best way that they communicate. And with some of us, it may be words. With others, it may be words that are written down as opposed to spoken. With others, it may be pictures, whatever it is. We need to honor that. And then there's a third one, which is the... Uh, self-care piece so it may mean doing some relaxation exercises uh more meditation being more mindful of these things and also being aware of the additional stress and what that causes everybody autistic or otherwise and i've talked to a lot of people both autistic and non-autistic who either comment well i haven't uh uh, I haven't engaged in this stimming activity, as it's so often referred to, since I was a kid. Now I suddenly need to spin the spinner or squeeze the toy cat or hold it with me wherever I go. And I thought I outgrew that. But really what it is, is it's a coping mechanism. It's a self-regulatory action. And it's a result of being more stressed due to the pandemic. Non-autistic people, I'm sure, are doing the same thing, maybe engaging, maybe watching uh, more TV than usual, getting all wrapped up in various TV shows or, um, or series that they otherwise wouldn't. So it's also important to be kind to ourselves, both as autistic people, those of us who are supporting autistic people, and uh, those who i guess have nothing to do with autistic people we still got to be kind to ourselves so this is what comes to mind uh, immediately okay thanks Stephen. just a couple of suggestions some of the people i know the autistic people who say it's great there are no crowds and the social distancing and it's lovely i wish that would continue oh yeah yeah oh yeah there's plenty of that i mean yeah there's a lot this, fewer yeah. experience a lot uh, okay. Now, fluorescent it, lights and bright lights. 
Okay, so th there's always a silver lining. Now, Rob, you were wanting to say something right. there. I just want to add one, one thing to what Steve was saying, and that is it's an opportunity for a parent to do something really significant with their child, some of the underlying things that we've been talking about. But in addition to that, there are interests. We all have said to ourselves, I always liked X, and I never did it. Astrology is one thing I'll never really study it but i always like something this is the opportunity to have your child explore something that they totally like they their passion without restrictions really and i bring up in my talks with covid19 and autism the story of sir isaac newton i don't know if you guys know this in 1665 there was a great plague of london and he was in cambridge university and everyone had to leave so Isaac Newton, who was a 24-year-old 24, 24 college kid, left and went home 60 miles away. And there he worked on some precursors to calculus. And he also, at that time, with no restrictions of people you know, structuring his life, uh, he came up with the theory of gravity, with the apple falling and so forth. That's when he discovered it. So I, not that our kids are like Isaac Newton, but we can encourage them to with their passion okay that that freedom maker so thanks guys now can, uh, can i show Denise, you have another question can i just when, show this when, one when you you've got something there could you i don't know if you can see this but i went through the word find and um f-i-n-d F for focus, I for interest, noting, and then D for do. And as 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 Rob said about our passions, as autistic people, if we're not involved in a passion or interest, we're not actually going to be motivated to do it. So, so I wasn't motivated. I was really switched off and very miserable. Yes, I like the social distancing. Yes, I like that I can hibernate in my room and I can um work on my computer um, i felt imprisoned and i felt this incredible anxiety about getting sick so i thought I've got, i kept thinking i've got to find something find something so i just played with the word find and then my passion a bit like you Stephen. well might not be your passion but i love riding my bike and i love birds yes, yes. and I, I built this new routine into uh, uh things i needed to that i could enjoy doing um, that that was different to my usual, but it, it became my new routine. A COVID nineteen routine pointed out will change as restrictions ease and change. But I just uh, wanted to share that. Thank you. Yeah, things are changing. Thank you. Then, when now, uh, Denise, have you got another question for us? Uh, yes, we've got many. I did get a couple of questions for Ron regarding COVID nineteen. Just how people can adjust if they are using remote therapies are there strategies that can be used that can be effective um, yeah let me first say i love what all you said i think it was beautiful and great advice um in terms of therapy we have continued doing therapy we're doing virtual sessions um and it's been quite quite enjoyable for our children to do that and instructive for parents We've also had to let them give them the same information you guys have shared, make life enjoyable. You know, it's not all about doing work. It's about taking care of yourself and, and enjoying life. And so we've 
try to infuse that through our therapy as well. Okay, one of the... Oh, sorry, Tony. Can I just add a comment to Ron? I like your phrase, make life enjoyable. Yes, I think that's so true. Now, Denise, you were going to come up with another question, perhaps? Yes, I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, The next question that I had is about diagnosis in adulthood. So talking a little bit about the value of that, this is a person who's wondering if pursuing diagnosis at any age is important or if it matters once you're an adult. Okay, Uh, let's see. Wynne, what are your thoughts on late diagnosis for an adult? Yeah, and again, late diagnosis and um, quality of life are all areas we're currently involved in researching. We're doing an oral history project looking at that very, those very issues. And I almost changed the word from diagnosis, like the word you used earlier in the session, Tony, when you talked about identity. Um, it's so, so important, whatever age, to know who we are. You can't find your community. You can't locate where you belong without it so i I actually think it's really really important at whatever age if we feel inclined or we've got questions around our identity whether we might be autistic or not i think it's absolutely worth pursuing that so that we can then get some answers and that encourages us to know what to do next my um my brother in his 60s was with his girlfriend and his girlfriend called me up and said, do you think my brother is on the spectrum? Like, I, of course, I know he is, but well, <laughs> what's going on? You know, so she explained to me, we go to a faculty, he's a professor, we go to a faculty party, and he's always in the corner. And she said to me, if he's just an ass, I'm not going to marry him. But if he has Asperger's, <laughs> he has Asperger's, I'll marry him. And now they've been married for six years. <laughs> okay, Ron, what are your thoughts on that topic, on late diagnosis? Again, I, I totally agree with this and said, I think finding your identity is absolutely essential, no matter what age it is. And I think it can get comfort, it can give understanding of what's going on. Um, it helps you, it just knowledge is important. And if you want that, it should absolutely be, provi- that information should be provided. Thank you. Now, Stephen, your thoughts, late diagnosis. Um, Absolutely. Knowledge is power. And it's a great opportunity for the autistic person to put clarity into their life, to be able to uh, to be able to reframe things that have happened in the past and to have the knowledge and the power of strategies that we've developed over many years, both us autistic people and those of us who support autistic people to address challenges that come in the future. And uh, I think it's great to have that knowledge. And that way, the person can begin to move from working against these autistic characteristics, formerly unknown characteristics that perhaps are seen as aberrant or strange to well, this is who I am. That's where you get the identity piece. And as part of Asperger's syndrome, autism level one, whatever you want to call it, maybe that does include uh, hearing sensitivity. I could 
become a, a work on being an audio engineer. It includes intensive interests. Okay, now let's revel in those interests and passions. And instead of looking at them as something to get rid of or to hold out as, well, we can get this if we do something else and move towards, let's make this a central part of the person's life. Thanks, Dave. Just a few thoughts on that, because uh, part of my clinical work is diagnosis or discovery of adults of all sorts of ages. And I find that this gives them a chance to have closure over a number of elements of why was I bullied and teased? Why did I hear sounds like nobody else? And once you can have closure, you can move on. But it's also looking at making decisions, as you say, for the future based on strengths rather than weaknesses. One of the things I found in late diagnosis, why has the diagnosis taken so long? Well, when they were younger, people didn't know about autism. But it's also the camouflaging, and that's a new area of research we're exploring, is those who observe, analyze, and imitate. Now, we're finding that this was originally identified by girls and women, but men will do it too. And so what we're saying is that by camouflaging your problems, you're creating a degree of stress, exhaustion, promotion to jobs that are not appropriate for your abilities. And when we're saying in camouflaging, we say be true to the real self. I use the phrase, be a first-rate Aspie, not a second-rate neurotypical. And we're saying it's okay to be you. We don't want to change you. You are who you are. What we promote is acceptance and explanation. I'm the sort of person who tends to look away when you're talking. I'm not being rude. I'm focusing on what you're saying. I'm the sort of person who talks a lot and lot about drain covers, but I'm not good at reading signs of boredom. Am I boring you? So those are the sorts of things. It's not to change the person, but to explain the person. So those are the things that, that I look at in late diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, Denise, do we have any more questions? Somebody was asking a question before I say. Did someone have something to add? Oh, I, ju I just wanted to say the, the, the idea of this camouflage or masking, a lot of Asperger's will use that term. It's up to them to explain what that I'm, why I'm not looking at you in your eyes. And that's a challenge because they have Asperger's. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. But what I say to the person is, could you ask someone who knows you well? What are the things that you do that are confusing or abrasive to others? And I then create a Carol Gray social story, a spoken social story to explain it. You can either treat, you can either teach the skill or explain it. And I often prefer to explain it because the other person goes, ah, I get that now. Oh, that's okay. And so it, it really is creating a phrase that's simple and clear with someone else usually to give understanding. That's what I, I, I endeavor to do. Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay, Denise, do we have another question? Yes, and this is relating to back to the diagnosis in adulthood. I received several questions about whether or not behavioral approaches or alternative behavioral approaches are effective in adulthood, the way they, that they're statistically believed to be effective in childhood and also about teaching social skills using behavioral techniques. 
what are different perspectives about doing that? Okay, Ron, what are your thoughts in answering that question? Um, we do a great deal of research on teaching social skills. We've probably published over 20 articles on the very topic of the most effective way to teach social skills. And we've, it's a very big concentration what we do. I think it's what separates ABA. I think all too often most ABA concentrates on behavior and communication. That's pretty much it. I think that's important aspects, but I think social skills are absolutely essential. It's why we wrote the book. Crafting Connections. Actually, we have another book coming out in a couple months on another topic of social skills. We think it's absolutely an essential part of what needs to be done. Again, it goes back to increasing quality of life. Um, in terms of alternative treatments or in terms of adults, again, ABA actually started in the adult population. It didn't start with children. If you go back to the history, that's where it all started. So with time, I think there's been an evolution of ABA, there's been de-evolution of ABA. And one of the de-evolutions has been that it's gone away from working with adults and adolescents is much more concentrated on young children. And I think that's, that's a shame. I think we, we need to be able to help all ages and apply behavior analysis to be able to do that. Okay, thanks, Ron. Rob, your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with Ron that the idea of never to give up, you can you could work with adults as well as children. And I've gone into institutions who will only take teenagers and they have all these wonderful, wonderful, wonderful programs. And I go, wait, there's one thing that I'm that I wish you would do. I would like you to treat this 18-year-old as if you were four and try to figure out what the child needs and bridge those developmental gaps and, and, uh, and have them have a you know, more satisfying life. So um, I agree with Ron and, and other people here that, that you know, adults can change also, and we should look at that and, and uh, have them be part of the system of improvement. Yeah. And thanks for that, Rob, because I agree with you. Uh, you don't stop learning when you're 18, um, as, as when and I are both 68. <laughs> um, you can still learn, and we still do learn. So to, to give up and say you can't learn, I, I think is ridiculous. Now, Stephen, your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's never too late. I know autistic people who have been... Uh, um, identified, you might say. I like getting away from the word diagnosed because it has a negative medical term, uh, a sense to it, uh, who have been identified as autistic in their 70s. And again, they too will go through the reframing process, the maybe like the appreciation process for who they are, discovery, as uh, you mentioned, Tony, and then being able to plan better for the future so that when they come uh, arrive at challenges, they know how to work with their abilities. So late diagnoses, uh, that's great. Uh, what about behavioral approaches for helping uh, uh, support older people who are diagnosed? Uh, like my answer at the beginning of our time together, it's a matter of what works. What best fits that person? And uh, depending upon what's needed, that's the direction that we go in. Okay, thanks, Stephen. When your thoughts? <laughs> I so dislike the term social skills. Um, 
social skills are redundant without social understanding and if i'm playing a game of chess if i'm involved and engaged as uh, that word rob then i practice things like turn taking listening um, and other social skills but when they're in a non-natural situation like the social skills club i've been asked to speak at here in my hometown i get I'm very uncomfortable because I've been a participant in some of those groups in my earlier years and I always felt odd, different, and I know I am odd and different, most humans are, we're all different from one another, but it, it just was an emphasis on what I couldn't do. Whereas when I'm engaged in a passion that I'm enjoying, uh, an interest that I'm, I'm with, then I'm much more in switched on or in tune to being able to learn and understand the reasoning behind the need to be polite, the reasoning behind the need to wait, take my turn and all sorts of things that I'm learning naturally as opposed to a social skills group, which is us and them. And I find that very uncomfortable. So it's the same philosophy in many ways. I need, like as all humans, I need to learn that there's more than me around and I need to learn um to listen and take my t my turn and, and and those sorts of things um but i prefer that it was done naturally around things that i'm interested in where i'm much more likely to learn more quickly than when i'm put it put into a situation where i feel um less than and i like temple's book which is uh, different not less um uh, for, for, for that emphasis on, on, on those things. Yeah, I think that depends on the learner. And sometimes learners do better in different situations and environments, and you have to really individualize that to the learner. I think, you know, using a, another example, marriage therapy, sometimes you can't do them the most natural way. And it's uncomfortable, but a couple might need to learn how to communicate or conflict resolution, and it has to be done in a, a kind of an art. It's an, an office, and sometimes that's necessary. So I, I think it's all about our, a number of different tools we have in terms of, of teaching. It's looking at the learner one by one and making that individual determination together where's the best way to learn and how to learn. Engage. Mm -hmm. Okay, now guys, I'm just aware of time. We've gone beyond what we were planning to do, but we're a little bit later in starting because the button needed to be pressed for me to be able to use the microphone. But some of the things we've picked up is, um, or are, um, an eclectic approach, an evidence-based approach that individuals who have autism are very different. They can change over time and different strategies are going to be needed. We need to be flexible and accommodating of all those components. Now, Rob, you're the original host of this session. Would you like to do some closing remarks? I think you just said it, Tony, and oh. I, I just <laughs> like the idea, like I said in the beginning, of people with different viewpoints to, uh, and I wish we could uh, respond more to each other, um, but I, I think this is something that we could do more often. That's just my feelings about it. And anyone else could come in with some closing remarks, that's fine with me. And then we'll turn it over to Denise. 
I just want to thank everyone. If I'm still the moderator, Ron, as you are on the left and we're reading from left to right, if you go first. I just want to thank everyone for being part of this panel, for inviting me to be part of this panel and for all of us to be able to engage and discuss these issues. I think it's really important and I've loved it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. By the way, I was just thinking, if I'm going to join this panel again, damn it, I've got to grow a beard. No, it's equity, Tony. Stephen, have you got your own closing comments? So, what I'm seeing, and I think what we need to pay more attention to, is turning away from thinking of autism as a series of disorders, deficits, and disabilities, and turning towards a model of autism that emphasizes abilities. Asking the question, what can the autistic person do? And then looking at those challenges, and certainly there are significant challenges that can come with being autistic. If those challenges didn't exist, we wouldn't be here trying to figure it out. They are there, we must recognize them, we have to remediate for them. Uh, however, we must always keep in sight uh, the abilities and what the autistic person can do. Very good point, Stephen. When I think you're probably going to be making the last comment from the panel. I, I have to say ditto to everything Steve said and everything you said, Tony, um, spot on. In my opinion, as an autistic person, um, those things are so, so vital that we move away from deficit and disorder, that we move towards focusing on strengths and ability, that we uh, recognize that person and respect who they are and nothing about me without me, please. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. autism is part of our family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the title okay. of the when, I'm sorry, autism spectrum conditions, not disorder. Yeah. Well, no, I don't mean disorder. If I think of ASD, I actually think of autism spectrum diff-ability difference of ability. But I don't don't even use those terms anymore as we're all growing and changing. Uh, and when we did our survey for with, across the board with autistic people, most people on the spectrum just want to be called autistic. <laughs> uh, leave it there. Yeah. And, and accepted for who they are. But the one area we've been missing here is personality. Yeah. We've huge. been talking about abilities. It's the person and we need to acknowledge that they can be very brave in going to school they can yeah. be very accommodating of horrendous painful sensory experiences yeah. and, and recognize who the person is and their personality yeah absolutely Thank okay you. okay guys i'm going to say farewell thanks rob it's been great fun and uh, okay. it's been good okay thanks guys i shall say Farewell. Thanks, Tony. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. I hope you found value in that clip. Make sure to like and follow me on Facebook at Rob Bernstein Autism Speech for updates and live Zoom calls with me. Feel free to email me any questions to rjb at autismspeech.com.
autismspeech.com. That's R-J-B at autismspeech, S-P-E-E-C-H, dot com. See you next time.